0: Auburn there are 15 head coaches and that's 15 different CEOs with 15 different cultures, 15 different business models, uh, 15 different ways of doing things and although in business we typically find particularly in the leadership role that certain attributes transcend industry and that is the case but also it helps to have a better understanding of nuances. You can't apply a one size fits all model to these 15 different mini businesses if you will.
1: I'm Roberto, engineer turned PGA Tour player turned businessman. And I'm Dan, businessman on the weekdays and average golfer on the weekends. On The Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest people in the golf business and get the insights, stories, and
2: strategies driving the business of golf forward.
1: Welcome to The Course Record Show. Today, we're joined by Alan Green. Alan played baseball at Notre Dame before being drafted into the Yankees organization. He then got into the business of college athletics, where he's been at Ole Miss, Buffalo, and most recently had a five-year run as the AD at Auburn University. Alan, thanks so much for joining us.
0: My pleasure, Roberto. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dan.
1: So a few episodes ago, we talked to Mike Small, who's a legendary golf coach at the University of Illinois, and our show is about the business of golf. So we wanted to dive into budgets and fundraising and all these things. And he kind of said, "Hey, the administration handles all that. I'm a coach. So here today we have the administration. So let <laughs> let's it. get let's get into that. Let's talk about specifically non-revenue sports and golf. Yeah. How does budgeting work? Is the understanding that like, hey, football and basketball pay for everything? Is that true? Is that is that dated uh, information? Just how do you think about those sports?
0: No, it's actually, you're actually pretty accurate. Um, and I would say that depending on the college campus, right? Depending on the environment. Football typically generates the re- generates the revenue for your Olympic sports. And as a former baseball player, having played at Notre Dame, I've certainly recognized the value of, of, of the brand of Notre Dame football and the revenue that they bring. So, yes, as it relates specifically to golfs, uh, both the men's and women's golf programs, it's essentially funded by the football department or by the football program.
1: And what about fundraising? So the annual at Georgia Tech, it's the Rambling Rec Cup or the Auburn Golf Fundraiser. Do those funds go to upgraded travel, bigger recruiting budgets? Like, how, where does the the athletic association's budget stop and kind of the auxiliary fundraising start?
0: Yeah, I don't think that there's a cookie cutter um, example necessarily or a cookie cutter environment. Uh, it really does depend on the campus environment. It depends on the uniquenesses of each program. Uh, some coaches have. I guess, a better skill set when it comes to fundraising and they can raise more money. So if you think about a men's golf coach and a women's golf coach, one of them may be able to raise money better than the other. Uh, We also think about Title IX and understanding that if you do something for a a male program, then you need to do the same thing for the female program and vice versa. So all those nuances come into play when trying to determine, okay, if we're going to fundraise for some sort of activity, let's say it's a foreign trip. Uh, then you need to raise enough money so that the uh, the other sex uh, can be able to, to do the same thing and have the same experience. So if it's not money, how do you
2: evaluate success in the non-revenue or Olympic sports like you mentioned?
0: To winning baby. Uh, <laughs> no, there's, you know, again, I, I say this as a, a recovering um, athletic director and part of what our responsibility is to do and, and most leaders in in, in uh, who are my colleagues would say the same thing. First and foremost is we want to make sure that our students get a world class education, and so making sure that our coaches emphasize the importance of the the academic pursuits of their student athletes. I think the second thing that's really important is that we want them to win championships. Right, we're not investing millions of dollars into the student athlete experience and and all of the the support people that go around that 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 surround themselves with these programs. Uh, just to come in in second place. So the pursuit of championships is really important. And thirdly, and and probably the most importantly, is we fall under the umbrella of an institution of higher learning, which means that our coaches and us as administrators um, are educators at the end of the day. And so how do you help prepare young people for life after sport? Um, How do you use golf to help uh, position someone to be more successful in life? And that doesn't mean necessarily make more money. Uh, that doesn't mean find a job. That just means understand that you're going to get a bogey. You're going to hit the ball out of bounds sometime. Um, but wh- how do you, how do you navigate those challenges in life to help then just keep you on a path to to finish all 18 holes or to finish, you know, uh, four rounds of golf when you're, when you're out there trying to grind it out. That has
1: to play into your hiring process too, I'd imagine for Olympic sports, right? Because, if you feel like somebody can lead men and women in that direction, like that's got to be a huge differentiator when you're looking to fill those spots.
0: Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Uh, Roberto and I would argue that no matter who you're hiring to be a part of your team, you're looking for someone who um, understands the importance of whether whether you call it the totality of the experience um but making sure that you're covering all those bases at the end of the day and you think about you know Roberto as a pro golfer you think about uh, the end game you think about performance and you think about the metrics how many birdies can you get how many under par can you get well you don't just go out there and say hey I'm gonna shoot a 66 today like you're methodical in your approach to course management and I would say off the course in college athletics it's the same thing uh, it's about course management. It's understanding where you want to hit the ball, where you want to miss the ball, where you want to leave the ball. How do you how do you help identify those people who are going to be help our student athletes be great course managers, if you will? And that I think is the secret sauce. If if it's solely about winning and it's solely about the outcomes then you're going to miss on some of the inputs. And so if you're just going to sit there and hit driver, 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 you're probably not going to score so well. And so instead of high risk, high reward, we, we want um, low risk, high reward. We want to be higher rewarding uh, by having people who understand that there's a, a broader sense of development that we have to have.
2: I always perk up whenever someone brings up metrics because that's my, that's my thing. Um, but I want to pull a thread there a little bit. And what are some of the metrics that you as an administrator look to evaluate the healthier programs? You mentioned some golf specific examples, but sure. like broadly speaking, how do you look at that? Yeah, so I'd say college athletics,
0: and, and this is really, a—it's a, it's a perspective. And so from an administrator's perspective, Yes, we are about winning right and it's very important to be successful and have the scoreboard read what you want to read at the end of a game or end of a match. I think more importantly for, for us as administrators and for coaches it's more about the process. And if you listen to any successful head coach, they don't talk about um, winning per se. They talk about what are you going to do to help make sure that a team or student athlete, a young person is prepared to be successful, I would say a professor does the same thing. So when we think about metrics right you you have athletics has a ton of data there's academic data. There's performance based data. uh, There's sleep data. There's rest and recovery data. There's fuel and hydration data. Uh, there's explosiveness and strength and conditioning data. You take all that data and you try to figure out how you're maximizing or if you're maximizing um, the inputs to be able to maximize the outputs. So those are just some of the examples, Dan, of of some of the data that gets used on a day-to-day basis in a college athletics program.
2: Is that common or do you think that's program specific? Like you seem very oriented towards some of those, the the scoring with the scoreboards and scorecards, et cetera. Is that a shared perspective across the
0: profession? It is. It is. And I think to, to various degrees. I mean, different different institutions and organizations have uh, different accesses to resources. And some of the expectations are very different as well. And I think the, the more sophisticated one's organization it is, the more sophisticated the expectations are that you're using some of this data and some more granular data to make uh, certain decisions.
2: I
1: don't think there was as much data when I was playing college golf, because <laughs> there, there wasn't. thankfully there was not explosiveness data because I would have <laughs> barely registered on the. Uh, well, on the it's, it's
0: funny that you mentioned that. So um, I would go to baseball practice uh, as a former baseball player and I would basically track man, right. Has now been introduced to baseball. Right. And from a hitter's perspective, there's exit velocity uh, there's spin rates there's launch angle i mean there's all kind of stuff right and when when we were playing when i was playing 30 years ago you knew launch angle you knew spin rate you knew exit velocity really by sound mm-hmm. and by feeling and by sight because you, you didn't have data to support what what your what your feelings were what your senses told you yeah and so now you have data to support what the senses are and i think unfortunately sometimes the senses get diminished because you're not using those muscles. You're not forcing yourself to have to pay attention to the nuances. You're just saying, okay, I hit a ball. Let me go look at this screen. Okay, this is where the results. And so we have to be mindful in regardless of industry. Uh, You know, you don't want to, you know, what is it called? Paralysis by analysis. So you have to be thoughtful and you have to be smart enough and confident enough in your skill set and your experience, but also use data to help perhaps find a uh, little, I guess, um, uh, small windows to be able to exploit, but also to confirm what you're seeing, thinking, feeling, all that kind of stuff.
1: Well, it's interesting how you say from like a development learning standpoint, like learning to be a great coach or learning to be a great hitter. Let's say golf. You used to stand behind your player with your hands behind your back for eight hours a day The great coaches did. So every nuance in the sound of the strike or the swing they picked up on. A lot of coaches now, when you're taking a lesson, they're behind a computer screen. And I just feel like over, you know, when you're acquiring those 10,000 hours, that's a very different process, baseball, golf, that I just wonder if those like true, true experts that understand those tiny nuances, if there will be less of those due to all the technology.
0: I think there will be less of those and you're seeing it now in coaching. And I think those who are the most successful are the ones who have the skill sets in both arenas. And if you can stand behind and look at a swing, and just tell that it's off plane a little bit, uh, not having to use a monitor. But then there may be something that you're, you're seeing, you know it's not quite right, but you're not quite sure how to address it or how to how to teach it, how to have that information sink into the student, the pupil. Then you can perhaps go to the monitor and say, okay, here's here's what you're doing. And I, I think there it's an important distinction to say that you know, communication is a two-way street. And a coach who may know every little nuance about a swing, and there may be an athlete who's really, really skilled, but just missing something, you have to be able to communicate. And the coach has to be able to share information with the student. The student has to be able to receive, digest, and implement that information. What we've seen over the past 10, 15 years is that learning has become much more visual now. And so it's really important for coaches to be able to take what they see, what they feel, what they, what they hear, and then try to find some visual aid to help a student um, understand and digest the information that, that's being shared with them.
1: So making a bit of a jump to business, same scenario, what were some of the key factors in your best relationships with coaches, right? Because you're, you're kind of coaching the coach. Like, what are the two or three things that you can carry over into business and say, "Hey, I have a team, or I have a boss, and this is what's going to make us the most successful."
0: You know, I, I've I've looked at my responsibilities as the leader in college athletics as a servant, and so I know you you didn't ask this question, but I'll give you this answer. I'm a servant leader. That that that's how that's how I serve. So, what does that mean for me? That means that I need to understand what our coaches are going through, which means that I need to know them on an intimate level. I need to know their student athletes. I need to know their business, their operation on an intimate level. At Auburn, there are 15 head coaches and that's 15 different CEOs with 15 different cultures, 15 different business models, uh, 15 different ways of doing things. And although in business, you you, typically find particularly in the leadership role that certain attributes transcend industry. And that is the case, but also it helps to have a better understanding of nuances. And so I, I, I couldn't approach um, our football coach the way we would do our soccer coach or our tennis coach or our swimming coach. Uh, number one, because personalities are different, but number two, because sports are very different. And so you just, it, it, you can't apply a one size fits all model to these 15 different mini businesses, if you will. And that's a, a large part of how I think we were able to be successful is that we recognize that each coach had a different need. And we worked really, really hard to have, um, to be very boutique, if you will, but also understand that there's some consistency that has to be involved simply because uh, under the model of higher ed, college athletics, I know most people will say it's a business because they see that aspect of it. But for those of us inside the ropes, it's very much an enterprise and there are other nuances that we have to manage as well.
2: So what are some of the toughest calls that you have to make or ADs have to make in sort of running their enterprise?
0: Yeah, I I have two answers to that. Um, In in many ways, the toughest things, decisions to make are personnel decisions, Uh, particularly when you spend more time with some of those folks than you do with the family who lives under the same roof as you do. Uh, So those are difficult, uh, more so because they're personal. There's a lot of decisions that aren't difficult at all. And I would argue most are not. And they're not difficult because in theory, you're making the decision that's in the best interest of the organization. And if you're truly making a decision that's in the best interest of the organization and you know what the quote right thing to do is, if you will, um, then it's not, they're not difficult. I think the challenging part in college athletics now is with the advent of social media, the decisions themselves aren't difficult, but it's dealing with the reactions of those decisions that become difficult uh, because there are people who are, in the college athletic space who are fans, who um, are engaged, who know enough to be dangerous, if you will, who start sharing their thoughts, their opinions, uh, particularly socially, where it can reach uh, masses of people. And what I've learned um, over my time in this business is, number one, you can't please everybody. And number two, not everybody has all the information. So when someone reacts to a particular decision, they're doing it with with um, a lack of information. They may have some. But there may be a there may be a, a detail, a nuance that they don't know that people in my position cannot share publicly. And therefore, their reaction is a little bit off base. And, and as as ADs, as leaders who who work in the public space have to understand that there's going to be criticism based on decisions that are made. And so long as we're doing it within the best interest of of the organization and people trust that we're making those decisions with the best interest of the organization, I can always put my head down on the pillow at night, no matter how much uh, backlash or, um, you know, commentary on social media there is.
1: Did you try to fill that information void or is that just a battle not worth winning?
0: (laughs) Once, once you kind of start to wade in those waters, you almost always have to wade in those waters. Right. And, it became very apparent to me that there are battles that you're not gonna win. And uh, there's a saying that says, if you're explaining, then you're losing. Well, I would argue every leader who sits in the public seat is, either has to explain at some point in time or are always losing. And I think that's why leadership in this day and age is so difficult to, to do, particularly for those who sit in public seats. And I, and as you mentioned, Dan, about the the business of college athletics, I think part of what's a real challenge is instead of operating a Fortune 500 company, and I, I listened to a little bit of the podcast from the gentleman from Titleist, there are people who really, really like Titleist, but you're not really investing by and large in Titleist, right? Where in college athletics, you went to school at a particular institution. Uh, you have um, a personalized license plate or bumper stickers or sweatshirts or hats or the country club you belong to, or you know, you're buying season tickets, you're investing, you're donating, and it's a Fortune 500 company. But you're all you're an investor, and you're financially and emotionally. And there aren't many enterprises, businesses, institutions, organizations where your investors. are are more than just capital investors, but they're emotional investors. And that makes it very difficult for people to separate their emotional attachment to a financial attachment, to something that they care so much about. And that's very, very unique in college athletics. So when people talk about it's a business, there are aspects, yes, that are very much business-like, but so much of what we do, it comes from the heart and is deeply personal to so many people involved. And that's what makes um, college athletics such a unique in, endeavor. I'm going to draw a line between two things you mentioned and
2: two different questions, Alan. When you mentioned personnel decisions being the toughest ones that you and ADs have to make, and you mentioned the role of emotion just now with a fan base, especially. I would have to think that the hiring and firing of football and basketball coaches are probably some of the most high profile decisions you have to make in that space. So let's talk about the hiring bit a little bit. Like, what are some of the things that you look at intangibly? to make calls for someone that's gonna be, have a huge position, sometimes the most high, the highest paid employee in the state, right? Like talk about those critical decisions and how you go about extracting principles from how you go about that.
0: So you'll notice I have a couple of answers uh, to your questions because sometimes you have to put yourself in different positions. And so by and large, I would argue there's there's some framework to work within a box, if you will. And so we use the word fit, right? And so what does that mean? Do you want to, who was your previous coach? Were they offensive-minded or defensive-minded? What was their personality? Were they hard-nosed? Were they players' coaches? Were they highly intelligent? Were they incredibly articulate? Were they not? That plays into your pool for the next candidate. Also, I think time and place, uh, place in very particular, is, is critically important because there are certain people who uh, may not fit a particular institution. Um, And there may be certain desires that an institution or the fan base has for a particular coach. And the fans, um, I think also don't recognize that at 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 a particular institution, sometimes your pool is very, very small. And at other institutions, your pool is very, very large. At some institutions, you're looking solely at head coaches. At some, you can hire coordinators. At some, people from the NFL may be attractive, um, attractive candidates. So that's where you have to start taking this box and start saying, "Okay, we need to poke holes in this thing and perhaps get outside of our box, outside of our comfort zone, or just take different things into consideration." And it's unfortunate that you sometimes, that like most times, you look in the rearview mirror to determine how best you're moving forward but those things are critical because what you're really playing into is the psyche of the team, the psyche of the fan base, and can you build momentum with someone? And I I think it's, it's, it's fascinating when a coach is hired, right? And everyone turns on ESPN and we hear the pundits say, that's a home run hire. How many times have you heard? That's a home run hire. That's a perfect fit. And what happens three or four years later, coach is fired. Okay, Um, someone may be super critical of a hire. You know what? That's a bad one. Not going to work out there. Don't see it happening. What happens? The coach is there for eight, 10 years. Something crazy. It's a gamble. It's a risk. And what most so you talked, we talked about data as well. If you look at coaching hires over a 10, 20 year period, by and large, a coach doesn't make a difference by and large. Right. There are always outliers. Nick Saban is an outlier. I'd say probably Kirby Smart right now and Dabo, outliers. I'm not sure how many more outliers there are in college sports, right? In college football, if you will, if you take the top 65 programs, there might be a a couple more that I'm forgetting. But by and large, statistically speaking, you're not better off or worse off by changing coaches, but you might feel better, right? You might be more optimistic. That means people might donate more. So it's not it's not just about wins and losses, but it's about the entire pie and really analyzing the cost benefit analysis of making a change and or who you bring in. Like Lincoln Riley at, at, at USC, for example, like that's a huge, a huge upside. They spent a pretty penny to get him. Right. And it's a huge upside. So it just it's hard to say, hey, well, if Alabama could do it, then, you know, every other school can do it. It's not that's not the case uh but but everyone has and wants to feel like there's hope and at the end of the day to be incredibly transparent what you're doing is you're selling hope that's really that's really all you're doing when you're making a coaching change and that sometimes it comes at, at a pretty penny
1: very pretty penny but that's really interesting perspective like i think about my parents went to lsu so i follow lsu football he, they've gone all the way from less miles than to coach Orgeron to coach, you know, Brian Kelly. Now, like they want a title with less. They want a title with Saban before that they won one with coach. O when Joe Burrow walked in and be, like, basically like the program has momentum you can plug in and they've had very different coaches and had similar results. And I'm sure you could take that, that uh, profile across a bunch of programs. That's really cool. I've never thought of it yeah. that way.
0: Well, and, and, and again, so this is part of I guess I'm kind of one of those old school coaches where I don't have a ton of data to point to for that. But I'm willing to bet that if someone were to do a deep dive and an analysis, then that's the that's what the outcome that they would come to. That's the realization that they would come to.
1: All right, Alan. We're a couple of years into NIL. What's been the what's been the biggest surprise? What what did you you know, if I could have gone what's been the biggest surprise to you two years into NIL?
0: That it took so long for it to get out of hand.
1: You thought it was going to get
0: out of hand faster? (laughs) Yes. And again, I I come at it from a a perspective where I've spent five years in a league that is the most competitive league in the country. It's not a win at all costs necessarily, but it's it's pretty close. Like you you have got to be successful. (laughs) And it goes back to there are people who so desperately want to win that they're going to go to extremes to do it. And, you know, there was lots of conversation a couple years ago, maybe two and a half, let's say three years ago, uh, when we were having discussions about NIL. And athletic directors commented that there needed to be guardrails. I don't know if you'd heard that term as fans or not. California started putting together some legislation and say, then Florida part started to put together some legislation that did not have guardrails. And then we were off to the races because no one wants to be at a competitive disadvantage. And by having, by not wanting to be at a competitive disadvantage, we created an environment or then an environment was created where there were no guardrails. So at the end of the day, what people want is fairness. But in this particular case, it's capitalistic right and and (laughs) those who have the most to spend um, are going to have a better opportunity to be successful i'm not saying that they are definitely going to win because when you look at the professional model just because you're you're um uh you're a high market team uh, doesn't mean that you're going to be, doesn't mean that you're going to win, right? Just the Yankees you're, don't you're, win every year. You're not winning it every year. There's, there there's some Jimmys and Joes involved in this thing uh, in order for it to be successful. But I think having resources puts you in better position to be successful. And so the schools and the donor bases who number one, have the resources to do it and have the desire to to really get behind NIL are going to be the ones who are gonna be better positioned for success. So yes, I'm surprised that more fan bases, more donor bases uh, didn't jump into the arena faster.
2: You think it'll create over time more, uh,
0: less competitive parity or more competitive parity? That's a good question, Dan. I don't know. It has the makings to do one or the other. It really does, right? And, and I think as we've seen television revenue, television revenue has driven success and I would argue that and I it's driven success because it's driven college athletics no different than professional athletics by and large is driven by talent acquisition those who have better players are going to have in theory better coaches right you look much better if you're if you're a coach and you've got five star players or you've got you know hall of fame type talent you're gonna be a better coach. So, how do you acquire those types of players to help your program be better? Television revenue was one because you can spend more money on facilities, on student athlete experience, on swag, on whatever. And now that there's an NIL space, you have the ability to acquire talent through that mechanism as well. So I don't know, I don't know that it is going to create more parity or or not. But if we think about human nature and if if history is any indicator, small market programs with wealthy donor bases should also be able to compete if they were to find the source of revenue to be able to to satisfy um, the facilities, capital projects, and the student-athlete experience. So we've already had the ability to do that and to dump money into programs. This is just a different way to do it. So if I'm a bet man, I would say that there isn't going to be any more parity, but the rich are only going to get richer. And those, be, those people behaving in that manner, if they continue to behave in that manner, they're only going to separate themselves from the field.
1: Talent acquisition. I remember Talent
0: acquisition. Now, for, <laughs> that's not a business term. I don't know what is.
1: One of the famous college golf stories is uh, I think Richard Sykes at NC state, who just recently passed away. Great guy, legendary coach. And, you know, you get back to the van and, Everyone's got their head hung low and he walks up and says, boys, don't feel bad. I'm the one that recruited you,
0: <laughs> which I'm sure there's exactly that story right. for
1: a lot of sports. But yeah. Yeah, it's, yep. yeah, This episode is brought to you by Holderness and Born. The weather in Atlanta has been beautiful this fall, and my go to has been the long sleeve polo. It's perfect with a pair of shorts to play golf or the pair of jeans and a vest for dinner. Check out hbgolf.com for all the different models of long-sleeve polos. You can't go wrong. They're all great. And if you enjoy this podcast, you probably love golf. And if you love golf, check out h Instagram feed. I think you'll dig it. They check in from some of the best golf clubs in the world and also do some interesting things like color stories when a new season starts. They're at HoldernessBorn on Instagram. Let's shift gears to golf just a little bit. Sure. You recently spent the day at the President's Cup in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm just curious, you're in the sports business. What do you think about the PGA Tour product? What do you think about their position in the market today? A lot of talk with disruption and pro golf, but just coming at it from a, you know, college athletics administrator, you I'm sure you walk around and just, you know, things run through your head. What what were you taking in and, and thinking <laughs> well, about?
0: Well, I I looked at it from a very different lens. And I think the part that was cool. Uh, was, I, I won't say being behind the ropes necessarily, but being able to look at it through a slightly different lens. Um, I will tell you, we had some great hosts uh, who gave us some 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 pretty good access and um, thinking about technology, thinking about branding, thinking about just a business model. And I'll never forget, they were doing the opening ceremonies, if you will. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go and get a, um, I want to get a polo. And I remember, uh, walking into the merch store, or whatever, and there was too many people in there. And I said, I'm not, I'm I'm not, I'm not doing this. Uh, I'm not doing this. There's, there's just far too many people in here. And so I walked out. Um, but I, I'm, 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 really interested in trying to figure out how the live tournament is going to impact uh pga and i'm really interested in in trying to figure out how the pga is going to elevate players uh, to be in positions where fans decide to tune in and watch
1: yeah it's a star driven sport for sure and that's uh, it's a good question. You have stars on both sides right now. Uh, it's the world is changing fast. Disruption comes for every industry, and we're seeing that now in sports, golf
0: included. So pretty it does, stuff. it does, it does. And and you know what? What I I think is pretty interesting. Um, one of the podcasts. Well, I think you were talking about this, uh, Roberto. Is is that the social media aspect of the PGA? and how players get points, if you will, for their social media posts. And I think that's really interesting. It's an interesting business model, right? right? As, a, as a part of the way to, the grow, to grow the game. And I would be, so so much of what we say on social is, hey, um, I'm on the range or I got this, you know, new watch or this car or whatever, but it's, it's kind of some superficial stuff. I would be interested, and this is part of of kind of how my crazy mind works. So when we were at the President's Cup and CapTech as the host, and and you you were talking about the bubble um, around the greens and showing the different camera angle, or the cameras or the trackers who were tracking the ball entering to the green. I would be really interested in hearing professionals talk about distance from the pin, um, angle from the pin, left to right putts, right to left putts, uphill putts, downhill putts, and really listen to their analytics, or I guess their analytical thought process on how to shave off, you know, six tenths of a stroke. Right, I I think that stuff would be really compelling. And so knowing that there are companies out there who have access to that data, and for amateur golfers, um, amateur land surveyors, I'll say, uh, I think would be really interested in having that kind of information.
1: Yeah. That's, I think that's a TV broadcast conversation, right? Because right now you kind of have the host and then the color guy who is a former major champion. And they talk about the pressure a lot. And, you know, Asinger gets a hard time for saying the word pressure, like 212 times during the telecast, but maybe the next generation of fan wants a little bit more than that, as you're saying, right. They want a little bit deeper dive. They want, they want to be inside the ropes in in just the gameplay and the performance side of it, so that's that's an interesting take.
0: Well, and also I think it's funny listening to. I happened last week and actually to spend some time with um, a color person who does color for uh, the PGA. Oh yeah. And I was just listening to. Uh, I was asking him about how he prepares and just some of the nuances, and it was fascinating. He's he talked about. He doesn't have a script. He just goes off of it. And I hear color commentators talk about how difficult a shot is. Like, oh, the shot's impossible to hit. Like, oh, they pulled it off magically. Yeah. Like, think those are pros. Like, as an amateur, there's no way I can pull off that shot. But I, I, I do think that there are opportunities to draw in a younger crowd. Um, and I think that there's going to need to be um, a, a strong look at how businesses attract this next generation who have shorter attention spans and all they wanna do is scroll through on their devices and they don't wanna spend more than 30 seconds on something. So how do you tell your story? You talk about an elevator pitch, like how do you tell your story super quickly um, and impactfully so that young people um, will be attracted to the sport? So we talked
2: about some of this, like the disruption in golf. We talked about the sort of changing fan, ex,
0: uh, fan experience with
2: the new social media, very much part of that assisting. How does this play into some of the conversations around uh, conference alignment? So much has been going on. I'm, I can't look at you and say, I'm hundred percent sure where my alma mater sits right now because I have it's changed so much, Yeah. but, but how does like, you know, going back to college sports, how do these themes play
0: out? Well, that's a great question. Um, uh, I don't. You often refer to commercials, but I think the Dr. Pepper commercial kind of hit the nail on the head when uh, prior to the football season they showed Fansville or whatever they call it and all this conference realignment and fans just going crazy. And I, I do believe that uh, no different than the professional golf world, college athletics continues to evolve. And this is not new. Conference realignment is not a new thing. It's been going on for for you know a hundred years. But I think it's happening at such a a little bit of a faster rate and, and it gets clustered in, in at times. And there's also, at least in the power five conferences, there's a lot of money at stake. And so therefore there's a lot of interest before people weren't all that interested because there, there, there weren't that much uh, revenue tied to it. And so I, I, I do think that there's a lot more noise in the system than there is actual activity. Huh. And I, that's because I'm the conversations I have with some of my colleagues, Uh, will kind of help illuminate the fact that there's a lot of chatter, right? And I think conference alignment, realignment at the Power Five level gets people excited, not excited, but gets clicks, right? So we we need to be thoughtful about um, how the media is portraying the the actual unfolding of these conversations. But we also have to recognize that there's a lot of conversations that are taking place that are not uh, made public. And so we know that there's activity happening behind the scenes. We just perhaps don't know who's having what conversations with who and what what the details of those conversations are. But I I will say that there's definitely uh, going to be continued shifts in conference and conference affiliation um, and and people trying to determine what is the next move going to be. Are there going to be super conferences or are, are conferences going to stay kind of where they are? We've seen the big 12 start to expand from their region, if you will. And so, and we've seen the pack, sorry, we've seen the big 10 do that as well. And so it will be interesting to see how uh, Cal and UCLA, handing some politics out in California. It'll be interesting to see how they transition and they they travel across the country the way that they are. I will tell you that uh, in the Southeastern Conference, the longest trip in the Southeastern Conference is shorter than the shortest trip in the Pac-12 wow. from California out to someplace else. So there's gonna be impacts. Don't know how how those impacts are gonna play out, but it's certainly part of the equation I know for the folks out of Cal, uh, and or sorry, at, at USC and uh, UCLA.
2: My takeaway is never name a conference with the number of schools you're expecting <laughs> it because it's never gonna be right. right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there, there, there used to be uh, some comfortability in that. And now it's just completely been disrupted.
1: Well, Alan, before we jump to some quick lightning round questions, what's next for you? You strike me as a guy who could do absolutely anything you wanted to do. You have had insights into all parts of sports business and other businesses. Where are your passions and what what do you think you'll do next?
0: No, I appreciate it. Uh, first thing I'm going to do is I'm trying to figure out when to play golf. <laughs> my hope, my hope is I can get on the course after this call if my wife will let me. Um, I'm I'm really trying uh, to spend time with my family. Uh, I've got three kids: a senior in high school, a sophomore in high school, and a fifth grader. Uh, my wife has been a single mother for the last 20 years, and I guess 18 years, 17 years, and so um, I want to be able to help out. And so I've, I've, my new title is a domestic intern. um, so I've gotten really good at folding clothes and putting the dishes away and that's about and washing cars that's about the three things I can do the best think professionally this is a great time to really step back and just evaluate Um, one of the things that I love to do and one of the things that is most rewarding for me is to develop young people and to see their development and as I mentioned before my personality I, I am I want people to succeed and one of my mottos has been care more about the success of others than your own and so if as long as I can land in an environment that allows me to uh, contribute some of my wisdom experiences mistakes uh, so that someone else can have uh, a, a better life a better outcome and develop uh, faster than they thought they could develop then 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 sign me up so I could jump back into college athletics can be a, an administrator uh, college athletic administrator could be in the private sector. I, I definitely want to be involved in sport somehow. Uh, how I do that, I'm not sure yet. And I'm very fortunate that I, I have the ability to be patient, explore, have conversations that I wouldn't have been able to have when I was an athletic director, and then perhaps pursue something uh, that that gets me out the house and, and makes my wife even happier.
1: <laughs> That's great. Well, I personally look forward to following career because uh it's super exciting and whoever wherever you land next they'll be extremely lucky to have you thank you very much dan you want to transition us into
2: some quick hits yeah we've we've been trying to ask some thoughtful questions you provided very thoughtful
0: answers you have
2: now the name of the game is going to change from thoughtfulness to speed so to speak so i'll i'll lead us through a section called tap-ins and roberto will do the same for buy or sell so
0: what about pickups? Because if you, you tap it in, you <laughs> can't just be picking up. All right, let's go. Quick right. race. I like that. I like yeah.
2: that. Um, when you play golf, walking or riding? Walking. Who's the AD you look up to the most? Kevin White. Bigger, more powerful conferences or smaller, more local conferences?
0: I don't know why. I don't know what context. Smaller, more local con- uh, conferences. What's the best brand in college sports? Notre Dame. Maybe I should change that to Nike, but Notre Dame. Wow, that's interesting.
2: Best brand in the NFL.
0: My wife is going to kill me when I say this. The Cowboys. <laughs> she, my, my wife is an Eagles fan. Figured. I might be sleeping on the couch tonight. I figured she was. Best brand in Major League Baseball. Yankees. Which team
2: was more fun to beat in your time playing for the Yankees? Red Sox or Mets?
0: <laughs> uh, Red Sox. Did we play against the Red Sox? God, that was a long time ago. I'll say Red Sox.
2: Living up north or down south? Uh I can't choose both. You gotta be a snowbird. You gotta do both like the snowbird deal.
1: Yeah. All right. My section is buy or sell. Buy or sell Tesla stock.
0: Wait, am I making money or wait, am I shorting it or not?
1: Oh, you're buying. No, you're going (laughs) long. You're going (laughs) long on Tesla or short
0: on Tesla? Uh I'm I'm Tesla. I'm buying. Okay. Buy or sell college golf as a TV product. Ooh. Uh. It's personal to me, so I'm buying. Buy or sell football super conference? Of course, I just said something else. Uh, <laughs> smaller conferences, but I'm probably buying. I'm probably buying super conferences. Buy or sell Barry Bonds having the home run record at baseball? Uh, selling.
1: Buy or sell a mixed gender version of the President's Cup? Ooh, buying. Buy or sell college campus golf courses? Definitely buying. Nice. Definitely buying. Nice. Well, Alan, we can't thank you enough. This has been one of our most enjoyable and honestly, just most insightful conversations. I learned a lot personally that I'll take from this. Uh, so this has been tremendous.
0: No, thank you. I appreciate it, Roberto. And Dan, thanks a lot. I appreciate your time. And, and, and truly, the, the questions were very insightful. So I appreciate your time and thinking about, um, thinking about that.